music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Hey, it's Matt Pinfield, and it's the Hivecast, and I'm very excited to be at the rec room in Brooklyn today with Adrian Grenier. And we got I remember asking you uh, whether I was pronouncing your name right, because, you know, you've heard people pronounce it so many different ways. Grenier, and they look at it lit, literally through the spelling, but you were saying that the Grenier was uh, you yeah. family that has, like, an extra E. Well, and, of course, I used to get made fun of when I was a kid. It was either, like, Greenier, you know, Greenier, or yeah. uh, Grenade. Or, you know, yeah. Or, 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 of course, my extended family, you know, uh, somewhere in the lineage, there was a, a, a split and a faction of the, of the family had an extra E. And I guess it had something to do with, you know, white people who couldn't pronounce it in the French way. So they added an E and made it easier. So it was Grenier. Yeah. Um, and my whole family, they, they don't understand why I don't have the actual, the extra E. And it's because my mom went back to the original spelling which you know gives us a, an added layer of sophistication, which helps to cover up the fact that we are, are not as sophisticated. The opposite, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, I know what that's like as a kid. You know, the, the, the easiest thing to call me would be Pinhead because of Pinfield. You know what I mean? Somebody <laughs> wanted to bust my chops. But you know, speaking of, of family and growing up, you were born in '76 in in Santa Fe, New Mexico. You Albuquerque, actually. Albuquerque yeah. was it? Yeah. yeah. So tell me a bit about like what are your earliest memories? People talk about you growing up in what was it more of like a commune, right? <laughs> is that is that? Tell me if that's true. Uh, well, and, you know, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Okay. Uh, but it's not entirely true. My uh, mother and father met at a Theosophical Society, which is not exactly a commune, but might as well be, I suppose. But it was really a sort of a retreat where they studied, you know, religion and the occult and meditation and, and different spiritual explorations. It wasn't a cult, per se, but you know, you, you, you it was a cult you could get out of. You know, you, yeah. You, you, it wasn't you, like you were locked in and right. They were trying you to could go check after out at the end of the summer. You know, that's good. Um, and so I was sort of a, I guess a, a summer fling, the result of a summer fling. Yeah. What are your earliest memories of? Of that, I mean, did you spend time there, or you lived outside of there? You're saying, yeah. So I was born, I was conceived there, and then I was born in Albuquerque. And my earliest memories were New Mexico, and you know, I remember double rainbows all the way, and you know, it's really beautiful. Actually, the skies there are incredible. Dirt, you know, a lot of dirt, playing with rocks and fire ants and uh, and and ant eaters. Do you know yeah. this? We yeah. call, we called them ant eaters. They were. Uh, the little insects with pincers, yeah, and the ant would get stuck in the in the little uh, hole that they would create, yeah, and they would be waiting underneath at the bottom of the hole, and then the ant would get in, wouldn't be able to get out, yeah, because the sand would start caving in on itself, and then the the anteater would come with its wincer and just like grab it, yeah. So we used to, of course, put little ants in the and and watch them get in the ant hole, yeah, eaten. out of curiosity. <laughs> you know, that's a, you're a kid, you know, yeah. that's what you do, and. Uh, Anteaters, well, what, what do they actually call them? I'm wondering. That's Those little guys, I don't know. We call we call them. Yeah. They would eat. They, they, they would pinch eat you ants. too. They will pinch you. If you get oh yeah. Them. You put your finger in there. Yeah. <laughs> you, that's all trial and error when you're a kid too. You know. <laughs> well, let me ask you: When you realized that you had a passion for music, um, and, and did that come before your passion for acting? Well, you know, my mom always played music, a lot of music. Um, some of it not so great, but a lot of it, you know, yeah. on par. Uh, you know, of course. Michael Jackson and uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates and uh, Toto. <laughs> yeah, well, it's <laughs> but, like kind of like soft rock, pop, R and B kind of. Yeah, thing. but uh, but of course also the Beatles, lots yeah. of Beatles, and um, uh, yeah, a lot of you know late seventies, early eighties softer rock. Yeah, um, which you know I think I like to say you know uh, has contributed to my softer side. Yeah, so I get to you know. Just be a little bit more even keeled, because of course I rebelled in in my teens, and I and I went real dark and hard. And what were you listening to then? What were the things? Um, well, Damien and I, Damien, filming us right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Damien was a big influence uh, on me. You know, Slint and um, um, who else? D. Sebado. Uh, well, Sebado, but yeah, Sebado's pretty hard. Uh, Nirvana, of course, yeah. and Dinosaur Jr. Yeah, but Funkadelic's not. Yeah, Funkadelic, but that, that, they got pretty hard. Um, Zeppelin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was the things you went for. You, you, you listened to really like Helmet. Yeah. I really liked Helmet. Yeah. Oh, what a great band. Absolutely. Yeah. Still are actually playing. 
uh, yeah. again now. We're doing oh, their cool. thing, and Paige is out there doing, doing it. Get him in the rec room. Sounds great. We should actually have him come down here when he comes back out from California. It'd be great to have him here. So that's what you were into. And when did you first start playing, though? When did you, I mean, because you played many different instruments. I mean, you sing in one band, right? And then you, you play other instruments as well. So when I first moved to New York, I was about four years old. And I, I ended up going to first grade here. And uh, after that, I lived here. So then in second grade, I went to Rudolf Steiner, which was um, a Waldorf school. And they required that every student learn two instruments. So in second through fourth grade, I took piano and French horn. Yeah. And so that gave me sort of a, a baseline uh, yeah. appreciation or understanding of music. But then I, I quit after that and didn't play after, after fourth grade. And then it wasn't until, uh, I guess, freshman year of high school, I was rummaging around some of my mom's things, and I found this old guitar that she used to take lessons on, uh, along with these Beatles books. And I noticed it was like it was a nylon acoustic too, so it was like really fat neck and nylon strings. And but I noticed that the uh, in the Beatles books the tablature corresponded with you know the song. So you know and, and had little pictures. So I was like, oh wow, this actually works. I could put my finger here, here, and here, and boom, there's an E chord. So I just started putzing around with those books and learning Beatles songs. And then after you know you learn three chords. You're you're off and running, branching out from there. Damien and I, uh, I, you know, I brought the guitar out, and of course, Damien and I started uh, putzing around. He was playing harmonica at the time, and and I actually taught Damien his first few chords uh, back in the day from what I had learned, and we wrote a few songs uh, about I think forty ounces. Yeah, we were we were, we were, writing, we were writing about what we knew. Yeah, well, that's what <laughs> Sublime had that album, Forty Ounces to Freedom, right? So that was you know. The same kind of thing, but you know that's what you were doing at that time. So you were still a freshman around that period of time. Yeah, freshman, and then we were going. You went to Laguardia High School. We went to Laguardia High School, and we were both there for drama, and we would split our time, and we would do uh, you know drama at school, but we would after school we would run home and we would play, and we started a band called the UFOs, which was unidentified funky organisms. Yeah, Um, I was playing bass. I was playing bass, <laughs> and uh, and and Damien was singing and playing harmonica, of course. Yeah. And no one would let Damien play guitar because he was actually, I think, his true genius was overwhelming everybody. So, you know, he had to go off and find his own way and and over overshadow us all later. But at the time, you know, we were we were a band, and that was our those were our roles. Yeah. So at that period of time, you had the band going. And when did you actually start really auditioning to do acting stuff? How old were you? I mean, when, when did you go out on your first auditions? So at LaGuardia, you know, we for for the four years we were there, we we would put on. Uh, well, it was actually the, the, the last two years we would do SDFs, which is a spring drama festival, and the, and the juniors and seniors would put on plays, and often agents would come to scout talent. So some an agent took interest in me and and started sending me on auditions, which. I never went to because I was always too busy playing music and jamming with the guys. So I would always skip the auditions and, um, you say, all right, I'm going, I'm going, I'll be there. Right? Yeah. And yeah. Oh yeah. Sure. Two o'clock. Okay, fine. Or would you just say, I, I, just, I don't feel like going. Yeah. I was just, uh, you were you know, a kid having fun. Exactly. I was a bad kid, bad, evil kid. And, uh, I didn't really want to do it. Obviously, you know, the, the thing about music is it's so immediate. You strike a chord and boom, you hear it, you feel it. It's right then and there. And making films, acting takes a longer, is a longer process. So, you know, I, I, I guess being young, wanting that immediate gratification and being present with the boys. And, you know, that was obviously the, the more interesting uh, choice. So, you know, I, I just blew off a lot of auditions. And, um, you know, and then I ended up going to college. And then I dropped out of college and was still kind of putzing around and being a bad kid. And then Eventually, you know, I, I had to get a job. My mom cut me off, and I was uh, finally waiting tables, naturally, and I was doing some bike messengering. And I, one day, it was a slow day, uh, and, and of course, I, would, I refused to shave because I was, you know, rebellious even in my beard yeah. hair. And uh, I ref- so I'd always get the, the jobs that no one really, that no one else wanted. Because they were the only ones that would hire me. Because, and so I was waiting in these restaurants that 
no one would come to. <laughs> so <laughs> on top of like sitting there for eight hours, you know, I'd, I'd bring home like $35. Um, so it was going nowhere fast and standing there, you know, at this job, having to be there, I had a lot of time to think and I realized, holy shit, like if I don't do something fast, I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. So that's when I started taking acting a little more seriously and I actually started to show up and read the scripts yeah. and put in a little effort. Did you go for more acting training after that or, you know, the actor's studio or any of that kind of stuff? Or, no, know, I... Did I, you just, you still had what you what you got at LaGuardia, you're saying? I, just, I got go. lucky. I got lucky. I, I, I applied myself and I got a job and, yeah. and that was sort of, the rest was history. And um, I'm still a bit rebellious. Uh, well, that's for uh, Unfortunately, sure, that. <laughs> you know, because uh, it becomes difficult. You know, I'm, I become uh, sort of my own obstacle in the way because... You know, even, you know, history repeats itself. Even the rec room is an example of, you know, it's, it's the same thing that was happening back in the day. It was like choosing music over going to the auditions. And here I am in Brooklyn. We, you know, built a studio and rec room. And in lieu of being in L.A., pounding the pavement for acting. Although I got to, you know, I, I'm having that revelation again. Yeah. Like, oh, I better get back to that. So, yeah. So now I'm, I'm going to start focusing. Now that the guys sort of have a handle on the rec room, I'm going to go back and start focusing on the acting again. Yeah, and we'll get into uh, the whole rec room thing in a, in a few minutes as well because I want to go back to you as a youth and then, you know, being estranged from your dad for so many years, um, first finding your roots, which was through PBS, um, you, you went back and found out and did DNA tests and found out that you were partially Native American too, which was, well, tell me about that revelation for you. What did that, where did you start to do more research? Yeah, that, that was a, that was an awesome experience to be great. part of that show. You know, it's, it, it was an opportunity that a lot of people would, you know, love to have, yeah. but the amount of research and the details that they explored delving back into, to my history, you know, was, was quite extensive and, they shared a lot of things that I'd never w would have otherwise known. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, so apparently I, I guess I come from a, a lineage of conquistadors, yeah. Spanish conquistadors that came over and, and at first we're, we're living peacefully with the native Americans, but eventually there's tension and a, a rebellion and the native Americans ousted the, the Spanish settlers in the town where my great, great grandfather lived. Where was that town? <sighs> I mean, I, it, was in, it was in New Mexico somewhere. Yeah. And then the Spanish left, regrouped, and came back with a brutality that, you know, is like so incredible that it's even hard to, to imagine. But they came back and they, they took a single leg from, <laughs> from every grown male wow. in the town. And that's how they sort of took their reign over the Native Americans. And then it became, of course, part of just the, the bigger genocide uh, of, of Native Americans at the hands of, of the Spanish conquistadors amongst other settlers. Um, but then, you know, of course, eventually there was commingling of, of the Spanish with the Native Americans. And they weren't, I guess, you know, not, not, not necessarily consensual um, yeah. unions, but, you know, a lot of, like, you know, these conquistadors came over and they were like mainly men. And of course, they come to the states, and they, you know, they have needs. Yeah, sexual and, drive, and yeah, and so they, you know, often would impregnate people, women, with without their consent. And so, I guess eventually, well, somewhere along the lines, came me. So yeah. sadly, and and you know, I guess that's just that was the the histories. I'm a product of a, a lot of brutality. And I guess as as a lot of us are here in the United States. Yeah. I mean, I remember talking to Chris Cornell, you know, from Soundgarden, who's, you know, grew up in Seattle, and he could never understand how he was 100% Irish. He's like, if they came in from Ellis Island and made their way across the country, why? You know, you, he was thinking about the idea of, you know, different people from different backgrounds, different countries having sex and then kind of settling there and then moves, you know, these geographically, the changes that would take place. So it's... Most of us that are here are what they would call mutts, or you know, you know, yeah, mutts. Well, and then and also, not only that we're actual mutts, but also the um, the stories get muddied. 
Yeah. Especially because of the shame and also the, the wanting to fit in to the ruling class, which was often more quote unquote pure or yeah. white looking um, and wasn't the, you know, the outsider or the minority. You know, a lot of times uh, people would lie about their heritage and pretend that they were more pure or, you know, quote unquote pure. Yeah. Um, and they didn't even change their names so that they wouldn't be uh, ridiculed or persecuted, things of like that. From you know. Grenier to yeah. Grenier there to Grenier. Yeah. No, it's amazing <laughs> when you think about it. So we talked about finding your roots. And let's go to Shot in the Dark because, I mean, that's an extension. When you decided to, th this movie was autobiographical, you produced and directed, and it was. You know, about the long search for your father, John, who you, you know, now you have a good relationship with. But tell, tell me, in the making of that, you knew that you were bearing all of your soul and the things. But but I'm sure so many people got out of that who've been through similar things, just those definite feelings that you have. Tell me about the, you know, the process and when you decided to make that movie. Well, not having grown up with my father, I never went through that rite of passage. You yeah. Know, the... the Bar mitzvah period, <laughs> yeah. where I became a man, where I went through the ritual of, you know, father imparting to me the next phase of my, my, right. you know, life, which was becoming a man. So I was in my early twenties, and and I and I was I was looking. I needed something. I needed some permission, really, to go out and you know be that fully formed man. And so I started this film um, because I wanted to. Well, A, find my real biological father who I'd been estranged from. But also, I think I was subconsciously craving that rite of passage. And also trying to un understand the role of father in our lives generally. Sort of, uh, you know, why do we look for that higher being to to look up to? Yeah. Whether it be father or God or whatever. Yeah acceptance and, and and you know and, and sense of purpose right? exactly and so you know I, I made the film with no intention of revealing all or you know uh, making a, a tearjerker but I really just wanted to understand it and and I think uh, on some level prove that I didn't need to have that biological father to become a man and I think ultimately the the rite of passage was something that I created for myself and I realized ultimately that I don't need a father. I don't need the su supreme entity to look up yeah. to. I don't need the God. I become, you know, my own man and I take charge of my life. And that was sort of uh, a really cathartic experience for me. And I think in unobvious ways, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't a tearjerker. It was actually a very empowering experience. Yeah. And, and ultimately at the end of the movie, I got to you know, look at my father, my biological father, eye to eye as men. Yeah. You know, and we both, you know, shook hands and said, okay, you know, whatever the past was, it doesn't matter. Here we are standing. The future is ours to yeah. collaborate, contribute, share. And it was, it was a mutual it was, relationship. And, you know, yeah. On. Yeah. Did you hear from a lot of people that saw the film that said, you know what, I've, this reminds me very much of my life? Yeah. Oh, to this day. And it's, it's not even people that have the exact, um, you know, parallel experience, but people that have, you know, their own unique, because everybody has a relationship with, if not their actual father, with the idea of father, with yeah. the need to strive for something, you know, higher or more um, established. Because we're, we're, you know, at the end of the day, we're all floundering here on earth as humans, yeah. and we could use a little guidance, somebody to tell us this is the way to go, exactly. you know, and... And at a certain point, you realize, wait a minute, like, you know, our parents are just floundering too. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. They made their mistakes as well, yeah. and we'll make ours, and their parents made their mistakes, and no one was perfect. Yeah, exactly. They're the perfect being, you know, or, per or the perfect example either. So, and you know, you have to realize that it's within yourself, right? Yeah, exactly. So Euthanasia was another film that you produced. <laughs> Tell me about that. Uh, it's a different sort of film. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know where I got it from. I'm going to blame Damien again. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it was, we had a dark sense of humor, and I think that that's probably culturally spe specific, uh, you know, something, a sign of our times where we were overexposed to a lot of things in media and, and just questioning a lot of authority. And 
and this was just sort of a, a dark expression of, of how I, I saw suburban girls yeah. um, and, you know, calling bullshit on, on a lot of the values of, of sort of American culture. And what, what is expected and what is, you know what I mean, projected. Yeah. And what, oh, yeah. And what they feel they have to be. Yeah. And, and on the other, the flip side of that, I mean, we don't have to go past that yet if you want, but Teenage Paparazzo, I thought with that, it was such a great idea where that 14-year-old who was in that. Tell me about how you found, how that relationship started, where you found him to do that and decided to make that film. You know, there's so many ideas floating around, and, you know, I, I had lots of them, and I was looking for uh, something to do, Yeah. you know, and, and I, a lot of the films that I, I take part in are really out of necessity like I just have to do something create something and and spend my free time creating uh as opposed to just sitting around getting baked um yeah. so so I you know I I saw this kid and he took my picture and I was shocked because he was you know a, a little 13 year old boy he looked like you know out of a you know Spielberg movie or something and and he and he and he was actually a paparazzo. And he was there with all those other guys who you'll see, you know, shot or out of the corner of the lens on a TMZ. Yeah, right. for the other guys. So he was right in the middle of all yeah, of that. Exactly. And so that in and of itself was a, a shock, and it sort of jarred me out of my sort of complacency. Where you see the paparazzi, okay, they're over there, and we're over here, and there's this tension, and it's kind of weird what they do, and maybe not quite right. But you just kind of accept it and you move on. You're not trying to, you know, answer any big questions. But this kid, there's something. It was like the kid was um, was the, the rabbit hole. You know, it was like the it was like the the glitch in the matrix. Yeah. It was the you know? Wait a minute. Something. There's something deeper here. And and he was the thing that got me to see that maybe there was something more sinister going on. And I still wasn't entirely convinced of making something out of that experience with the kid, but. Then I read a book uh, by Thomas de Zangotita called Mediated. Yeah. And it was just that. It was, a, what was it, the red pill or the blue pill? I don't know. The, yeah. the pill that, that like really opened my eyes and said, oh my, we are in the matrix. And it yeah. was the, the media matrix. And I realized that this kid was actually the key. It, he, he represented everything within this book. So it was really the combination of having met the kid, read the book, and then seen the correlation that I decided that this would be a great larger story to tell, you know, sort of the ideas within this book, you know, told through the eyes of this kid. And um, that was sort of the initial impulse. And then, of course, you know, it was the the specifics of our relationship and, and you know, the irony of him being the paparazzi, me being the celebrity, like to, in its purest sense, the celebrity, you know, being a celebrity for being a celebrity. Yeah. Um, of course, because of Entourage and being so incredibly lucky to have been given an opportunity to be on that show and become that pure celebrity and then have the willingness to just turn it on its head and just and have know, fun deconstruct it. Exactly, have fun with it. Tell me, when you when you got the call to, to do the film or audition for it, who did you hear from? Did you hear from the people that were there, like the Alex Kansas or the Mark You mean Wolverine? Entourage? Yeah, Entourage, <laughs> I'm sorry. As for the Vincent Chase part. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so again... Yeah. You know, being me, I w was not interested in doing a television show, and Entourage was too base for me. It was too superficial, and you know, oh yeah, you know, it's misogynistic and and like you know, just conspicuous consumption and indulgence, and it didn't reflect my values here in New York, and and so I was. The first offer, the, the first you know, offer to audition was, I was like, nah, I'm not really interested. No thanks. <laughs> and then my manager called me. He said, No, I think you should take a second look. And I was like, I don't do TV. He's like, You're gonna take an, another look. I was like, I don't want to. And he goes, You take another look, or you find a new manager. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, okay. That I heard that, and yeah. so I did. I took a second look, and and I and I you know I said, Okay, you're right. I'll go in and. And so I did, and you know, the, the rest is kind of history. But I, you know, I, I owe it to to Lev for uh, you know giving me the ultimatum 
Yeah. <laughs> well, what's funny is in, 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 in a parallel universe of, you know, truth and fiction imitating truth or truth or the other way around, depending on how it is, there's those scenes in there with you and Jeremy Pittman as Ari Gold where he's like, you, you, know, you, take, you know, you're fighting over taking certain parts and doing films and whether you should do yeah. A-Man 2 or whatever, yeah. you know, the different things that you're going on with. And then uh, did you enjoy the experience, though, of doing it once you got into the center of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I was a, a, a ignorant little kid when we first started, and you know, it taught me so much. It, it you know, what what Entourage really taught me is to have a little fun, you know, yeah. to not take life so seriously, you know, because I was probably overly pretentious and serious before Entourage, and and now with the perspective that I got, I was a little. I think I'm I'm a more well balanced person, and. um and so, you know, I, of course, not only the opportunities that it gave me to, you know, build things like the rec room and make films, but just generally just life experience was, you know, it, it was a blessing. Were there any actors uh, that were involved there? Because so many, so many great guests on every season as the show became more popular. People really wanted to be a part of it. Did you forge friendships with and, and afterwards and people that you became, what was that like? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know the Entourage boys. Yeah. It's it's a family situation. You know it's one of yeah, those Jeremy, things. Jeremy, Kevin, all the guys here, right? And it was. Yeah. You know, you you may not see them every day, and I live in New York. They still live in L.A. You don't see them every day, but it's you know you don't see your family every day. But you know when you get together, it's it's like you never stop seeing them. exactly. Never left and, just, you, know, you love them, and that's what it is. You yeah, know? that's what it is. And and you know Jerry and I. You know it's funny. Jer Jerry and Kevin have also been making documentaries as of late. Jerry just did a great. A documentary he produced or executive produced um, a, a documentary called uh, a band called death yeah um, which if you haven't seen it it's I've got to see it incredible yeah uh, obviously fantastic band uh, you know yeah un undiscovered until recently and from back in the day and then Kevin just did a, a documentary for uh, what is it 40 on 40 yeah the ESPN thing yeah yeah so it's cool to see that they're they're also exploring, you know, uh, you know, other uh, opportunities and, and you know yeah. the creative outlets, which I think the documentary is such. To me, I love documentaries. It's one of my one of my favorite things. I've always, I've been a huge documentary fan for a long time, and I see, I love what people like HBO are doing, where they're putting out a new one every week during the summer, or you know, Showtime is, you know, acquiring a bunch of different documentaries, whether it's the one on the Cow Sills, the '60s band, or you know, Paul Williams, a songwriter, you know. Uh, I love that, no matter what it happens to be on. Or the Oakwoods, and there's a documentary on the Oakwoods and all the child actors that go out to L.A. in Burbank, you know, and Barham. So there's just, I, I find documentaries, uh, that's I, that's what I prefer to watch. I love that. I'm and, a huge fan. And by the way, I'm, I'm a huge fan of radio as well and radio documentaries. and Yeah. And uh, so any form of sort of slice of life, real life stuff, I'm just like all about it. Yeah, that sounds great. This is the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. So I think the next thing I should ask you about is we were talking about Entourage and in season four, there was a part where, you know, you wanted, you were determined uh, to go to Colombia and do Medellin and play Pablo Escobar, you know, in your character and you guys go over there. Um, and that takes me to your most recent documentary, which is, you know, been doing well in theaters and number one right on Amazon and number one on iTunes. Yeah, right? we... We, we got <laughs> yeah. That. How to make money selling drugs? Yeah. So I, I, well, maybe everybody's thinking that they're actually going to learn how to make money selling drugs, and that's it's a, <laughs> such a popular um, title. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's some kind of you know movie that B movie that you'd get out of you know a red box machine or like or like uh, that you know when you hear the title you think it's like one of these action movies you know what I mean? Right, right, right. It's like there's two g gangs fighting or something, but it's not that at all. <laughs> Tell everybody about the premise of this. So How to Make Money Selling Drugs, uh, directed by Matthew Cook, is a very fun, fast-paced, I guess, how-to guide, uh, make money selling drugs. Yeah. <laughs> is that it? I mean, it's, it's a film that really uh, explores an insider's look at drug dealing. Yeah, how and street drug dealers can become the heads of cartels, right? And yeah, you start, you start the from the street corner. As a hustler selling dime bags and you make your way up the chain all the way to cartel and drug lord. And it explores, you know, how best to do that, but also all of the pitfalls that you may encounter. 
and like your own death actually too or jail or yes death is 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 one of them that's the ultimate i guess and we deconstruct the the main obstacle which is the war on drugs and really through the process you know you learn that often the laws the policies that guide the war on drugs are often worse to communities worse to society than the drugs themselves yeah absolutely and i think that's Interesting that you have Susan Sarandon in there as well, everybody from her to, to 50 Cent, and then yeah. people talking about different experiences they've had or their views on the drug laws as well. Yeah, well, we demonize, we often instinctively just demonize drug dealers. They're the bad guys, they're, they're evil, they're wreaking havoc in our neighborhoods and our communities. And that's actually true, but often because as a result of the black market, which is created by the war on drugs. It goes back to prohibition in those days and all the crime that came and there crime, death, and violence that came out of prohibition, you know, making alcohol illegal. That's why you had the Al Capones, you know what I mean? It, yep. And you, so there's a, an organization called LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And it's an organization of police officers and narcotics officers who have realized from their point of view as law enforcement that prohibition didn't work in the Al Capone days yeah. and it doesn't work today. It has increased drug use. We, since, I guess, uh, 40 years ago when Nixon declared the war on drugs, drug use has increased. Violence has increased. Prisoners has increased, all due to the war on drugs. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's an insane law. It's an insane policy, yeah. <laughs> generally speaking, and it doesn't really address the real issue, which is uh, addiction yeah. and poverty, which poverty is the reason why people turn to selling drugs. Because it's it, one, one way they, they can make money. Yeah, and, and when people are desperate, feed they, themselves. Yeah, there you go. They do, they do what they have to do. Yeah. And of course, because it's a black market, because it's unregulated, uh, it, crime becomes part of that job. Yeah. So... And the prices go up. So when it's such a lucrative opportunity, uh, people, you, you pick off a, a drug dealer, let's say law enforcement comes into a neighborhood and, and arrests somebody. Now there's an, a vacuum. And so in order to get, take a position in that business, it becomes a violent exchange in order to vie for that position. Yes, because it's, again, the really correct word is unregulated. Unregulated. Know? It really is. Yeah. I mean, it, even in my neighborhood, you know, there's... There's no, <laughs> it's no mystery that there's some drug dealing going on, but it's an extremely safe neighborhood because there is stasis, because it's, you know, established, you know, order and hierarchy. If there were ever to be an arrest, suddenly I think, you know, my neighborhood would be up for grabs from the, the you know, the different illegal uh, drug dealing factions. So yeah. I'd like to keep Gangs it. and groups and that's the thing, you know. Exactly. Let's keep it the way it is for now. Until uh, we can just end prohibition altogether. Yeah, it's great, and people can get the movie, and they can get, pretty much get all your movies right through Amazon. Can they get them? And yeah, I think so. And, I think so. Mm -hmm. Which I think is very cool. Yeah. Um, tell me, and, and on a lighter note, we got to talk about the first time that we were uh, doing a radio interview together. It was for the movie you were involved with, with the air drumming competition. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that movie. for Well, because I want people to know that there is a real Ari Gold out there. There's a real Ari Gold, but, you know, he, he's so mad at me because he thinks I sold him out. So uh, you, we, we should explain <laughs> this now. Yeah, there's a real Ari Gold who you worked on uh, with this movie, um, and then he ended up, yeah, obviously, Jeremy's character in the, in the show, in Entourage. So did you know him first, and did you suggest his name? How did that come about? So if you want to know the, the web of connections, I'll, yeah. just, I'll briefly explain it to you if I can. Yeah. Uh, if you're paying attention, you know, <laughs> take some notes if you have a pen, because uh, it gets complicated. But So when I did Shot in the Dark, yeah. I met a guy, Ari Gold, yeah. who had directed an amazing short film that won Sundance called Frogs Crossing. Uh, he lived on the Lower East Side. We met. I brought him on to help me make Shot in the Dark. And that's we spent a couple weeks shooting that. And that's when I first met him. And we became friends. And then um, I saw him on the street several months later, and he had a ukulele sticking out of his bag. And I said, oh, you play music? I play music too. Let's rock. Okay, fine. So he broke out his ukulele, and we rocked. And then we started a band called The Honey Brothers. Right. So that was a band that I was in for 
you know, many, many years. And what you played a couple different instruments in that band, right? What did you play? Well, at first drums. we switched around. I played yeah. guitar, played bass, whatever, but eventually settled on drums yeah. uh, as we tried to become more conventional, which completely destroyed the band, and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and now we don't exist. But uh, we played in the Honey Brothers, and then um, I got Entourage, and that started. And, and, of course, there was a character named Ari Gold in the script, but I didn't even think about it. I just thought it was funny. Oh, I know an Ari Gold, you know? And, and I didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind that I should mention anything. So then the show comes out, and I get a big talking to because yeah. I was like, I can't believe you sold me out. You gave them my name. You said it was okay. And I had nothing to do with it. At best, I just didn't do anything. I was sort of passive in the whole whole exchange. And he thinks that I should have maybe mentioned it because it's been a big deal for him. Because Jeremy Piven's character is, right, is a jerk. You know, yeah, He's like, I don't want to be a jerk. It'd be one thing if you know he's like a nice guy. Because he doesn't want people to think that he inspired it. Right, exactly. You know I mean? exactly. And, and, uh, and Ari, the real Ari, you know, he, he says that like one time he, he broke his arm. He called the hospital and he's like, I need to come in. And it's like, you know, what's your name? And he said, Ari Gold. And they like hung up on him or something because yeah. they thought it was a, a, a prank. Um, they obviously watch the show. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, and now it's in reruns too. I mean, now it's in syndication, right? Well, it's on Spike and stuff. So has he gotten over it after all of it? Is well, it? yeah, he's, he's learned to embrace it. And I think, yeah. you know, that's, that's the right thing to do. Um, and then eventually he, he made a film called The Adventures of Power, being a filmmaker. Yeah. Um, and it was his first feature and uh it was about an air drummer who became an air drummer because he couldn't afford real drums and i play the arch nemesis who was a spoiled rich kid who had all the drums in the world but all i wanted to do was be an air drummer yeah <laughs> that's good. what a great story and neil pert from rush was in the film right he was he did that's you know how hard it is to get him to do yes things i mean that's an incredible feat because he does few interviews. You know, you might see him in a classic rock magazine or, you know, when Rush get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But generally, Alex and uh, and Getty would do all the interviews. He's a very private person. He's had, you know, tragedy in his life. He's happy again now, but he had lost his wife and his daughter in secession. Um, so, you know, I mean, he's written books about that. But to get him to do this movie... And have fun with it. Tell me how that took place, because I know that huge Rush fans. Well, you'd, you'd have to ask Ari. I don't. I mean, he he's can be very persuasive, and he's a hardworking uh, filmmaker. Did he send him a letter or something? Do you know how? It, uh, is it hard? I I don't really yeah. know. I don't yeah. know. Uh, I know there's a charity component. Um, you know, I I don't know what. But that's was, great that he did it though too, because I love the fact that you can do something like that, and have fun. He got uh, he got great people in the film, yeah. so uh, you know I think it, it was a cool script. It was a fun script. It yeah. was lighthearted. It was had a great message. Yeah, absolutely. So, I thought it was really cool. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to do. Let's talk about the rec room where we are right now. I mean, this project, you know, I was turned on to. And I and I went onto the website and saw what you were doing here with the studio in Brooklyn. Why don't you explain to everybody what the rec room is? Yeah, so we are in the live room at the rec room, which is in the basement of my house, and it's a uh, it's basically an open opportunity for independent bands to come record a song, a music video, and put it out uh, through our collective of musicians and community of people who love cool independent music, and sometimes we end up working more extensively with some bands. Uh, we're starting to get into the label area. Yeah. So we can start contributing more uh, more meaningfully to a few bands that we work with more. And, um, and it's really ultimately just, you know, initially it was just wanting to, you know, make use of the excess bandwidth of my studio because, as I mentioned before, I've been playing music since I was young and Damien and I have had... I don't know, 10 plus bands together and side projects amongst those. And we've always had a music space. When we lived together, we had a little room with, you know, our very first drum kit that we bought for $150 on, what was it, in the back of the Village Voice, we found it. Uh, and, and then from there, we just kept growing. And eventually, I got a couple bucks uh, from a little show called Entourage, and I built yeah. like a proper studio. And, you know, I got busy and... 
I couldn't use it as much as I would have liked. So I called Damien and I said, Damien, make something out of this, you know, use it. You, you know a lot of bands, bring in, you know, 50% of your 20 bands, record some songs, we'll make videos, we can do all that, we've done it for years, and, you know, let's just, let's use it. And you've turned it into this website as well, which is where people can go and see those videos. Where those bands oh, are it's the internet, the baby. Show, and I you think know? it's great. Yeah. And you've got Brian and Michael, who you're, you're working in the studio with you out there as well, and help set everything up. What is the general way that artists, they can reach out to you guys at the TV? Can people send you music to check out? Or Matt, what is your your admissions? You know, what, what, what is the procedure there? It's, it's been pretty casual up until now. Um, it's been mainly friends and friends of friends bands and and then you know we'll go out and see a show oh i love these guys and then then we'll wait around after the show and lurk like 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 a and r guys (laughs) yeah suddenly you become that creepy dude who's hey you know liked your stuff you know want to hang out yeah you know but you know we uh, you know yeah i mean if you guys want to send us something we have a contact button just send us some stuff we'll try and get to it we're really small so we can't guarantee that we'll be able to get to everything right away um but we you know we together the four of us decide on who we invite in and it's really just a matter of whether or not we can hash it out and and we can have sort of a a minimum of you know taste and quality right i mean because obviously there's a load-in process the bands have to get set up you film them and the idea is to record at least to record one song right each day at a time when they do uh yeah we we've been posting one band a week speaking of bands and getting more involved with them it's great young band that i discovered on your site and then saw live in dover delaware at the firefly festival a few weeks back uh, called the skins and they blew me away i loved them and you know i saw them they were on really early in the day but you know, you know a band's great when they go out there and they play. If they're playing for fifty or hundred people, if they feel like they're putting everything into it, like they're playing for five thousand. I mean, they just had this incredible natural chemistry. Great band, great playing, and the amazing thing was I wasn't even aware by watching them the age how young they were, like the ages between like fifteen and twenty, right? Yeah. So they're amazing. I love them. So I just so you're working with them as well at this point, aren't you? Yeah, uh, the Skins. Um. Yeah, biggest organ in your body and the best band out there today. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're really great. I really believe you know great things are in the future for them, and I discovered them on your site, which goes to show that it's having an effect. You know, what I mean it's 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 reaching people, and people are finding great music there. We've been so lucky to have the Skins because they were uh, they essentially put us on the map. I I'd say. You know, we, we had a few bands uh, before them, and then they were, I don't know, maybe the third post that we did, and they went viral and made us look cool. I mean, <laughs> you know, so it was really an honor. I mean, we're we're so excited about them because I can't say here now, but there's a lot of really things big things happening right. with them. And uh, so stay tuned, certainly, to, well, Go, go to their site and what is it uh the skinsband.com yeah. or you know keep watching rec room because uh there's going to be some big announcements coming up i love it i mean i gotta say you know it's funny because i know that some of the band members were have been involved in the school of rocks now their school of rock franchises from brooklyn to ninth avenue new york city and jersey you know i've gone and spoken to, at a bunch of them and given you know advice kind of done some mentoring and <laughs> they even did one in montclair new jersey where stephen colbert's son goes they did a 120 minutes tribute show. Nice. Yeah, and you know, kids, a lot of them, even those, you know, were like some of the members of Skins, not born when those when a lot of those songs were played on that show. Or, but that's the great thing about it. It's that love of music and love of real musicianship. And um, tell you got you feel like telling that great story about the drummer of the Skins when he came up to you. Oh, and you did it Because it's a classic. It's it's a true thing about youth confidence, and I, I love it. So can you? So you know, just to. You know, again, demonstrate the the very family web that you know that that has created the rec room. Uh, Joanna, who went to LaGuardia with Damien and I, uh, younger sister of Damien's first girlfriend, whose name is Adrian, um, yeah. and she was working at the School of Rock, and she invited the Honey Brothers, my band, to come you know give a pep talk play a couple songs for the kids and we did so we showed up and i was the drummer because we remember we were being more you know mainstream at the time and then 
Uh, so I'm sitting there playing the drums and this little twerp comes up to me, this little punk kid named Reef. And I think he must've been like 11 at the time comes up and he goes, you're not playing that right. <laughs> Can you imagine? I just think it's... And like, this is in the middle of a set in front of everybody. And I'm supposed yeah. to be the cool yeah. adult, you know? And he say, he said this out loud in front of yeah, everyone. Yeah. In front of everybody. And then I'm like, you know, I'm like, trying to shoo him away with my elbow. I'm like, get out of here. Get out of here, kid. You know, (laughs) you're like cramping my style, you know? And he's like, this is how you do it. And then he like jumps on the drums and he kills it. He just rips me to shreds. And, you know, I mean, I was, you know, I was embarrassed, but you know what? He was right. Like he knew how to play it. And I was just, you know, attempting to. And, um, you weren't playing it right. Yeah, okay, there look, is. there he is. <laughs> no, but I love so, that. So, too. so yeah, thanks, Reef. Thanks for yeah. that uh, em- yeah. embarrassing me. But look, it was just apparent he had talent at you know probably when he came out of his mom, and now um, with the skins, he's. I mean, just go watch it. Like he's just incredible. Three siblings in the band too, all super talented. All super talented. Uh, you know. All from oh, the five, neighborhood. Yeah, they're, all five band members. Right? Yeah, I mean, great. They're they're just a great band. They're just they they're professional. They mean it. They have talent and and execution. That's yeah. the key. You know, they they can actually they can articulate what they're thinking, what they what their ideas. Yeah, that's all of the you know all of the elements of a, of a great long long career band. Yeah, and I I saw that in their live show. There, I was I was blown away. And again. It was the first video I saw in Rec Room, which, you know, people that are listening to the podcast, you got to go to the RecRoom.com. There's so much cool stuff up there. And it's, I love the fact that you're just wanting to give back to musicians and, and it's working. It really is. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, and you've got your friends here too, right? With Damien, Brian, and Michael. So it's like, it's a, really like a crew. Yeah, but I don't know. How, like, I don't know if we're like so much friends anymore. Now I'm just the asshole boss. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so tell you, we, you know, one thing we didn't talk about yet was Alter Eco, which was the, um, you know, Planet Green show that you did. Now you and I were backstage at the Firefly Festival, and the girl walked up to you with this soccer ball. Oh yeah, how cool is that? The huh? thing was unbelievable. Tell me. Yeah, what- we actually. So uh, <laughs> so Alter Eco was a, a, a television show that I produced for. Planet Green, which was Discovery's uh, Green Channel, which has since disappeared, uh, not because it wasn't a good idea, but because they didn't do it right. If, yeah, if I may say, yeah. um, and we didn't have the greatest experience there because we wanted to make it cooler, I guess. Yeah. So we started a, a website called Shift.com, S-H-F-T.com, and uh, it's really just a place you can go to find the coolest. Uh, most well-designed, future-forward concepts and uh, things, good gadgets, gear in sustainability. And that lo- that the girl who brought the soccer ball, it was like it it lit it generated electricity. Yeah, didn't it? yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's you know it's design first and then sustainability second. Yeah. That's our philosophy. And in fact, we just we posted something about the the soccer ball last week. Yeah, because she was great. She was so excited. She'd put it, made it herself. And right? it, it, yeah, them. and and a, an incredible entrepreneur. And we we posted a picture of uh, Obama actually. Uh, butting the soccer ball on his head, I guess, because he she she had visited uh, the White House with her her project, which is an incredible. Uh, but th- but that's the idea: is you can make things better and more efficient, and not only more efficient, but uh, products that create energy and contribute more to the environment that are also functional and cool and well-designed and something that you want aspirational. Yeah. And so, yeah. And that's what you support. You support at shift.com. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can always do better and people are actually, you know, building these things and they're, they're making uh, products and they're doing business in a more efficient way, more sustainable way. Uh, We just have to give our support. We have to vote with our dollars and find market-based solutions to environmental problems. Environment, the the environment isn't going to get solved by all of us singing Kumbaya, you know, or, you know, moving back to, you know, trees and wearing Birkenstocks. Yeah. You got to put your money where your mouth is and make things happen and support people that are doing creative things and that are, that are inventing things and finding ways to make positive energy. Yeah, we're, we're not, not... Things that are draining. We're not going to um, replace capitalism yeah. tomorrow. No. 
or you know our modern sort of lifestyle. So how do we fold in environmental concepts into everything we do already? You know, we're we're not going to give up driving, but no. if we're going to drive, let's drive the technologically more advanced, ecologically friendly car. Right, exactly. Well, I mean, it's great. So that's two things people have to check out that are listening right now, which is therecroom.com and shift.com. And again, it's S-H-F-T, just so you know if you're listening. Yes. So Adrian, so the, the, right now after this movie, what's the next thing up on, on your plate? What are you thinking of doing? Or do you have something that... Uh, uh, I want to... Sh- I, wanna, uh, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, y- I'd like to do. Uh, I want to get back into acting, like I said. Yeah. You know, I'm going to start focusing on that a little yeah. bit more. And um, I think that'll be. I mean, it's just a matter of you putting your mind to it and go. Like you said, what you're talking about when you were younger, showing up for auditions because people loved show you. Show up. You got to show up. As Vincent Chase. I mean, you're great in the show. And what a great, really great cast and ensemble. Yeah. Well, you know? of course. Yeah. You know, actually, uh, I think in my inbox right now is an entourage script. So. Yeah. So are you guys actually working on uh, doing a movie or something like that? Or is it about a bringing movie, a movie about? Yeah, a movie. That would be amazing. Would the same people be involved with it? Like the, like Alex Gonzo was involved in it for a while, right? Uh, he obviously does Homeland and was involved in 24. You've got a bunch of different people there. Who would... uh, yeah, it's certainly the original cast. And, yeah. Uh, I don't know the details of w- what it's going to be exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's going to be big. Oh, it sounds great. <laughs> I mean, it's about time. Come on, HBO did a Sex in the City. They should have done a Deadwood. They talked about doing that. They never did, right? But Entourage, a movie would be amazing. So. I think so. <laughs> so that's great news. That's I'm really looking forward to that as well. But I, Adrian, I wanted to say thanks for doing the Hivecast today. Thanks for inviting me over to the rec room. It's so it's cool to be here. It's it's great to be hanging out with you in Brooklyn. It's an honor for me and for for all of us. We're we're really happy to have you here. And you know, don't run away. Hang out. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. <laughs> Sounds good. It's a Hivecast. And don't forget RecRoom.tv. It's amazing. There's great bands on there. RecRoom.tv. This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to MTVHive.com.